0: One of the greatest tragedies of the evangelical church in America is that the average professing believer does not live what he knows and proclaims. This hypocrisy has plagued the last hundred years of the evangelical church in America. Even an increase in the knowledge of God has not translated into dependent, God-honoring followers of Jesus. There has been a revival of the teaching of the doctrines of grace in many pulpits in the last 20 years. However, with the revival of solid doctrine, there is still not a lot of change in the lives of those who are professing the Reformed Christian truth. The biggest problem is we don't live trusting in God's sovereign grace as much as we herald God's sovereign grace. Today, we see the opposite in Stephen's life. Stephen not only proclaimed the gospel of grace, he lived the gospel of grace. He not only proclaimed Jesus Christ, he worshipped and honored Jesus Christ. He not only understood God's grace, he displayed God's grace. He loved Christ and his neighbor Until his dying breath. The last two weeks we've covered Stephen's remarkable sermon before the Sanhedrin. We saw the great sermon included a couple of features. We saw Stephen's defense of the faith in Jesus Christ. We saw Stephen's appeal to Israel's history. He exposed the wicked pattern of the people. Stephen explained that God had provided grace and leadership over the years. However, Stephen also exposed Israel's consistent rejection of God and his messengers. And third, we saw Stephen's confrontation of his audience at the trial. Stephen stated the council was responsible for murdering their Messiah because they were stiff-necked and uncircumcised of ear and heart. He indicted them for being just like their fathers, who had rejected the previous leaders. He preached truly a remarkable sermon. Stephen preached a great sermon. So what makes a great sermon? I would say accuracy, an accurate explanation of Scripture, a revelation of the glory of God, a bold confrontation of sin... And a genuine messenger and an offer of hope. That's what he gave in the message. Stephen, when I say a genuine messenger, Stephen did not just preach the sermon. He also believed it and lived it. And I am completely convinced that this is where it falls short often. As we proclaim the doctrines of grace and we proclaim the glories of God, we fail to connect the dots. We fail to apply the truths to our heart, but Stephen was different. He was a genuine messenger of God, and he offered hope. Now, as I thought on this over the last couple of weeks, I've thought, where is this hope, really, in this sermon? It was confrontational, wasn't it? It was God-glorifying. It was filled with Scripture. We know that, right? His sermon was. We saw that. But where's the hope? Yes, Stephen mentioned Jesus' death, but again, the focus was on their wicked responsibility in killing him. Right? And there really wasn't a lot about forgiveness in the sermon, was there? Was there any forgiveness in the sermon at all, if you remember back? There really wasn't. It was really, you blew it. You blew it just like your fathers blew it. You say, well, Mike, then, why did you say that it was a great sermon? If you say a great sermon includes an offer of hope. Well, (laughs) beloved, I don't think the sermon's over yet. (laughs) We're still going to see the sermon going on in chapter 7, verses 54 through the end of the chapter. Today, we're going to see the perfect example of living our message till the end. And this is what it's all about. Stephen's death actually, and the way he deals with his death, is actually the hope. He's offering hope through the way he dies. You'll see it as we go along. He does give hope. And the way that he dies represents the gospel beautifully. I would argue that we need to learn how to live this gospel much more. We all need to understand who Christ is and what he did. And then we need to live like he lived. And that's what Stephen did. We will see by living out our sacrificial commitment to Jesus, we often reveal a fine illustration of the gospel. So let's walk through this end of Stephen's sermon, illustrated with his death. I just want to encourage all of you. We all need to live what we say we believe. Mark that down. Do we live what we say we believe? Today we're going to see God's grace on display in the midst of a wicked and perverse people. We're also going to see that the great value of living what we proclaimed. So we left off last week with Stephen's confrontation of the religious elite. Now today we see the Sanhedrin's evil response to Stephen's sermon. We start with the initial response of of the wicked in verse 54. Notice in verse 54 it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. What did they hear? It says, Now when they heard this, well, the this is probably referring to verses 51 to 53, the conclusion of what we saw last week. It is the application section of the sermon. You men, notice in verse 51 it says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. Specifically, this is the the this that they understood and they heard. When they heard this, they responded with anger. Notice it says they were cut to the quick, literally cut to the heart, not in a way that leads to repentance, but instead in a way that leads to hostility. They heard the truth and it angered them. Let me ask you a question real quick, just thinking on this. How do you respond when you're confronted with your sin? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we can see a lot about a man's heart by the way they respond when they are confronted with sin. It tells a lot about them, doesn't it? When somebody tells you, hey, does the Bible say that you should do that? Do you get angry? Who are you to judge? Then you've probably got a problem. A heart that is submissive to the truth and when confronted by sin accepts it and doesn't make excuses for it. But they began to gnash their teeth at him. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is like a preacher's worst nightmare. Can you imagine I'm preaching a sermon and all of a sudden I can just look out into the crowd and all of you begin to gnash your teeth at me and growl. You don't realize this, but folks, you just don't realize how much I see up here. (laughs) Sometimes I go home and that night I'm laying in bed after a Sunday sermon and I think, man, I wonder what that person meant by that look. What in the world was going through their minds? Or when I'm preaching something very difficult and I'm going right at you. I've actually had people, when I'm preaching this, and if it's you, don't worry, I don't remember who it was. As I'm preaching, you're going. (laughs) That's not me. That's not me. But how would you like to be Stephen? And look out and see your audience all in one accord hating you. And gnashing their teeth. Their anger over being confronted with their sin is what ultimately led them to sin even more, didn't it? And again, I want to challenge you. How do you respond when confronted by the truth? Don't justify, don't get angry, run to Christ. Repent. Repentance is where hope is found. It's not found in getting even or pointing out the other person that's confronting you of their sin. Spouses, we never had this problem, do we? Your spouse brings out something in your life that you did wrong and you look at them and say, yeah, but you do this. You know what that is? That's not much different than gnashing your teeth at your spouse. It's still a heart that's not repentant. Do you understand? Do you understand? Ouch, right? You say, well, I don't, at least I don't kill my spouse. That's good. (laughs) Praise the lamb, right? But that would be only because of grace. As these wicked religious elites, blood begins to boil. Notice God's role in the man of God. And notice what happens. God Begins to work in Stephen even more. He's showing more of himself. And look at it in verse 55. God's grace upon the preacher. In verse 55 it says, But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I don't know about you guys, but man, I wish I had these kind of visions. <laughs> Again, I don't think everything's normative in Scripture, but I can get an understanding of the glory of God. And as I know the glory of God more, I will respond appropriately as I understand Him through His Scriptures. As I study the Scriptures, I know His glory, and I can respond like Stephen also, and you can too. Notice it says, being full of the Holy Spirit. Again, this points to Stephen's ultimate power source. Again, the Spirit was in total control of Stephen as he faced the angry crowd. Victory and trial and temptations always comes from God, ladies and gentlemen. Mark that. Understand that. Your victory is found where? God. That's the only place. Again, as the pride and anger of the crowd grows... The child of God responds the totally opposite way with humble submission to the Spirit's control in his life. That is so profound. Do you understand the difference? You have the anger of resisting the Holy Spirit's message of the cross. And yet you have the man of God responding with what? Humble surrender to the Spirit of God's control. As his eyes are fixed on Christ. It's a beautiful illustration of even a day-to-day walk with Christ today for us. The same thing happens. This is a crucial point for us all to take to heart. When tensions flare, humility and dependence upon God is where victory is found. Do you understand When things get rough, when people get angry at you, when people go after you, when people confront you, when people are angry at you, what do you do? You respond with humble dependence upon God. We Look to Him. Now notice also, instead of fixing his eyes on the hostile crowd, Stephen is given a vision of what he needed to keep his eyes on, the glory of God. And this is beautiful. I love how this works. Because God, in a sense, says, okay, you know what? I want you to get a good glimpse of me because this is the only way you're going to make it through this. Let me show you who I am, Stephen. It gives a special revelation to him. He says, because if you have your eyes fixed on me, then you're going to respond appropriately. And The same is true for us. Not that we get these visions, we're not getting those visions, but we are seeking to know Christ more. And as we pursue Him through the Word of God, we get more and more of an understanding of Him. And then faced with the trials, what do we do? We respond like Stephen. Guys, those five English reformers that died being burned at the stake didn't have visions. But they had the same God they were serving. They had the same glory of Christ in their minds as they faced the hostility. And we can too. Notice Stephen gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God. Stephen's attention was focused on God, not man. The crowd was snarling and angry, but Stephen was focused on God. In this situation... It was a special revelation from God that had his attention. Beloved, our solution when we run into trials and difficulties is no different. We need our eyes firmly fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to know and understand the glory of God. The more we study and understand the glory of God, we're going to respond appropriately because we're going to apply those truths as our hearts are fixed on Him to our circumstance. And you're going to see this is amazing. This is a beautiful display of God's glory found here where He sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand. What He does is He shows a very important attribute of God, a very important feature and characteristics of God, so that Stephen responds the appropriate way. Now, here's the good news. We have the revelation. So we know the same God. And we can respond the same way. It's not literally about what Stephen sees physically with his eyes. It's about what he knows in his heart about what he sees. And we can know the same truths as what he knew. That's why he gave us his word. So we can know these truths. So you can know the same God that he knew. And you can respond the same way as he responded. Does that make sense? That's why he wrote it down. That's why my job's amazing. Because I get to curl up in the lap of God every weekend and learn more and more about how good he is. So I can respond appropriately too when y'all snarl at me. We must fix our attention on who God is and what God has done and what he is doing. When our mind is fixed on God's sovereignty and power, we will avoid taking attacks personal. Our attention can't focus too much on what people are thinking of us. Now that does not mean we ignore people. It means we have our attention first and foremost on God and His glory when others get hostile towards us. If we are focused on God and His glory, we will respond appropriately to others. If our heart and our mind are focused on the author and perfecter of our faith, We will respond like the author and perfecter of our faith. We'll act just like Christ. And that's what Stephen does, doesn't he? We're going to see this. We're going to see this repeated throughout. This whole passage, who does he look most like? Who does Stephen look most like? Jesus. He's focused on him, and he becomes just like him. His attention is on the Savior But here we see God gave Stephen an extra measure of grace. He literally gave Stephen a glimpse into heaven. God gave Stephen a glimpse of his glory. This vision appears to be only for Stephen. Nobody else appears to have seen it. Stephen was seeing the glory of God. And the glory of God is further described, notice, by Stephen himself. Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Now in light of... Exodus 33, where God had said, "No one can see me and live," this is pretty significant, isn't it? Stephen seen the glory of God. How? Answer: Jesus Christ died for him, and he had a perfect high priest and he was able to come in to the Holy of Holies. literally to see God. Do you understand that's heaven? It's what we're going to do. We're going to see God. Why? Because of Christ. Because what Christ had done for him. There are two key points from this vision. First, the righteous one whom the people had murdered is in the presence of God. What's that imply? When he says this, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They knew who he was referring to. He's referring to Jesus, the one that we murdered. What does that imply about Jesus? He was the righteous one. It also points to the reality that Stephen is understanding and, 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 and fully uh, focused on Christ and what he's saying is true. And that he knows God too. They're the ones that are in error. But he's the one that really understands. Because he sees God. Stephen is getting a live illustration of what he was proclaiming. Jesus the righteous one who died and rose from the dead is now ruling and reigning in heaven. And again this is what Stephen needed to have his mind fixed on. His heart fixed on as he faced his horrific death by the hands of godless men. Yet at the same time, Stephen began to explain what he was seeing. And notice he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's explanation of seeing the glory of God would have both shocked and infuriated those listening. They That made him more mad. He says, I see Jesus, the Son of Man. The phrase that Jesus had used numerous times in the last days of his ministry and pointed to the fact that He was the Son of Man. So they knew who he was referring to. And for him to say this, this was, be quiet, Stephen. He saw the glory of God. And who was sharing in the glory of God? None other than the one they had killed, the Son of Man. This was the title. Like I said, Jesus had referred to himself. Daniel 7 is probably where it's referring to, referring back to. This vision revealed Jesus was sharing in the glory of God. It revealed Jesus' deity and his supreme authority. Jesus was literally standing at the right hand of God. Now, (laughs) I've even heard this prayed lately. Uh, Some of, uh, I've heard people say, they've made more out of this than I think they should. Uh, No, I don't think Jesus is giving Stephen a standing ovation because Stephen had given such a masterful sermon. I don't think this is a standing ovation from Jesus. That's called bringing our culture into your reading of the Bible. It's Not what he's talking about there. I believe the point is, is Jesus standing is more to point to his active and engaging participation in the moment. He's attentive and he's active. And after all, the right hand of God is the seat of judgment and rulership. And this was just a court proceeding. And Jesus is active and watching and participating. So having him stand at the right hand of God, pointing to his active participation in his position of sovereign ruler and judge. In other words, by Stephen saying, Behold, the Son of Man standing at the right, of, at the right hand of God, he was saying, in effect, Whoa, whoa, You condemn that man. You are going against the ruling judge and he is active and he's taking note at the same time by jesus doing this and having this and giving this glimpse to stephen he's saying in effect stephen you got it right i am the sovereign lord and they murdered me and i'm now ruling and reigning in other words stephen saw and ...into heaven and saw Jesus actively participating in his sovereign rulership. In a sense, Stephen got a glimpse into the Lord's sovereign authority in action. My friends, this is exactly what Stephen needed... ...in order to respond appropriately to what was coming up. At the same time, this is the preacher's greatest desire... To have God at the end of your sermon with a supernatural revelation of himself... Say, yep, that's exactly what I want you to know. This is about me. And you preached me. God has literally given Stephen a glimpse into heaven... To give Stephen his conclusion to his sermon. Again, Stephen had confronted them with their sin. He had boldly stated they had murdered the righteous one. Now God was saying through this vision... The righteous one is not only alive, but he is actively reigning in heaven right now. For the preacher, this would be a giant rush of supernatural joy. And for someone who is facing a horrific death, this was exactly what needed to be on the martyr's mind before he was killed. Oh, take note, listen closely. Hear me. We talk about the sovereignty of God. We talk about the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus. But we must trust in that truth when we face our difficulties. It is that truth buried deep in our soul and trusting in is when we survive in the moments of difficulty. It's only that. That's why God says, look, let me show you the sovereign Lord who is reigning. Look at him. Look at his position. The right hand of the Father means he's the authority. He's in control. And he's standing. He's active. Look at him. Take note of him. Now when your world crashes down behind you or around you, trust him. And that's what happens. But as we know, this is not what the council wanted to hear, did they? (laughs) They saw Jesus as a blasphemer who deserved to die. And Stephen was saying, Jesus was in fact the righteous, ruling, sovereign judge. And you're going to face him one day. And Jesus was confirming to his servant through this vision that Stephen was preaching the truth. So look now at how the Sanhedrin respond, how they responded. The evil response of the wicked. In verse 57 it says, But they cried out with a loud voice, and covered their ears, and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of the young man named Saul." They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Notice it starts with, but they cried out with a great voice or a loud voice. Again, that adjective for Stephen shows up. The adjective great shows up again in the narrative concerning Stephen. But this time it's describing the enemy's response to him. The idea here is is they were We're done with Stephen's sermon. I've had enough of you. They cried out with a great outburst of rage. And Beloved, this is exactly what people will often do when they have heard enough of a speaker. (laughs) They will attempt to raise their voice above the one speaking in order to cover up the speaker's voice. You understand, by the way, uh, when you get angry, just a little side note on this. When you get angry in that, that that idol of anger and self-control, you're, you're, you want to rule everything when you get angry, and you speak louder than the one you're talking to, ultimately is you trying to dominate the person that you're talking to. Speak over them. That's all they did. This was so no one else could hear him. I'll shut him up. You know how I'll shut him up? I'll speak louder than him. I'll scream louder than him. I find this almost like childlike behavior. Isn't it? They almost look like kids. Or a a child, when he's getting picked on, he sticks his fingers in the ear, right? He goes, la, 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 I don't hear you. Isn't that what they do? It's crazy, isn't it? This is exactly what these guys are doing. And these are the leaders of Israel at the time. It says literally they stick their fingers in their ears. They cover their ears. (laughs) It's almost comical, isn't it? Here you have a man that's probably younger than most of the guys speaking, and he's speaking wisdom and truth. And the older ones in the crowd stick their fingers in their ears and act like a child. Why? Because they had had enough. They hated that name. And they were going to silence him no matter what. We will hear no more from you. In fact, the rage led them to unite with one purpose... This is totally amazing because the Sanhedrin was known for arguing. There were divisions within the group. They hated each other. Often they would fight. But there was unity in this. Hatred of Jesus. And they came together in one purpose. It's interesting this same word is used to describe the church's unified commitment to the truth earlier in Acts. That same word, unified, with one purpose, with one impulse. Now the word is used to describe the council's unified commitment to Stephen's death. And notice it says, When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. Now, you know... It's, it's sometimes when you're reading through your Bible, y'all you find yourself doing this. I, I find myself doing this often. When I'm just reading through the Bible, I, I kind of read over passages like this. You, you know, yeah, you got stoned to death. And then next. And Saul was there. And then, uh oh, oh, and yeah, and here. You know, it's just the next thing. Just stop and meditate for just a second what it means to be stoned to death. Do you understand? <laughs> As the scene unfolds, we see more and more evil from these men. Being confronted with their sin and being confronted with the truth of Jesus, it produces rage. I think we don't see this much, so we might be tempted to think, well, these guys were particularly wicked. If they stoned somebody to death, they must really be wicked, right? But my friends, this is how everyone we confront with the gospel would respond outside of God's grace. If they knew they could get away with killing us, they would do it. It's a fact. You say, not no what Not my family. Not my friends. Oh, really? All you got to do is spank a three or four year old and you'll see it. The reality is this. The human heart hates, hates God. wants God out of their lives. These were men in positions of authority. They were full of themselves and they hated Jesus. They had been confronted for the last time in their minds, so they snapped. And not just one of them, but the whole group appears to snap all at the same time. When you stop and think what it would take to kill a person with a stone, or with stoning, what would that be like? Can you imagine the horrific scene? Just just comprehend that for just a second. Think. Somebody's sitting there tossing stones at you. One or two stones would not have been enough to kill Stephen, right? I mean, he would have had to be pummeled with them. It also appears that for at least a little bit of time, Stephen remained standing as they threw the stones at him. You can see this as they went on stoning, and then verse 59 and 60, you'll see eventually he kneels down. But literally he's standing, and they're whacking him with stones. This is where our rage takes us. This is where our idol of being ruler over all, takes us. Do you understand? When you say, he will not be my king, that's where your idol takes you in rage. Takes you to stoning somebody to death. There's also an interesting little point here found in verse 58. that says... And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, most of you in the room, I imagine almost all of you in the room, know that Saul turns into Paul later, right? And we'll develop this as we go along. But you know what's interesting is that little phrase, the witnesses laid aside their robes. What's that? Well, those witnesses are probably the ones mentioned back in Acts chapter 6, verse 13. Where they put forth... False witnesses who said this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. So why these witnesses? Well, their law, their moral code taught them that the witnesses had to throw the first stones. So in effect, when they laid down their robes, the witnesses laid down their robes at Saul's feet, they were the first one to pummel him. So Saul was there from the beginning to the end. He knew it and watched the whole thing unfold. And as it says in 8.1, he gave hearty approval to what was happening. If the false witnesses did it, in order for them to get a good crushing blow, they had to lay the robes down. Make sure that you got full arm action. They wouldn't have picked me at this moment. Their violence Continued, even as Stephen sought the Lord in prayer, notice that they went on stoning him as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do you understand the irony of this? What is the irony? They are supposed to be the religious leaders. They say they're protecting the faith. They say they're protecting against blasphemy. But you've got a guy seeking the Lord, you're killing him with stones. That is crazy, isn't it? But That's what the world does. It's not shocking. This is what hearts do apart from God's grace. Which brings us to our next point. Notice God's grace from the preacher in his death. Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. So it's important to note, Stephen goes in his heart exactly where he needed to go when he faced this. Where did he go? He went to the Lord. He prayed. Notice he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That would be important, wouldn't it? <laughs> he knows when he's in trouble, where do I go? To God. I go to the Lord Jesus, the one who I just saw in a vision a second ago, a little bit ago, standing at the right hand of God. He knows he's sovereign, so what he does is he sits down and becomes a hyper-Calvinist and doesn't pray to him. Well, I'm going to die. God has ordained for me to die. No, he trusts him, but he seeks him, and he petitions him. You know, this is where people just miss it. Reformed teaching doesn't mean you don't pray. Knowing that God is sovereign makes you pray more. Because you know He's ordained the means as well as the end. He's ordained for our prayers to move Him. He's the sovereign king. If you have an ear with the king, what should you do? Talk to Him. Call on Him. We should be a praying church, Brad. He's sovereign. He's God. We need Him. A couple of the guys before they were gonna, they were gonna, uh, they were gonna come up here and do their, their uh, scripture memory. He said, "Hey, let's let's go pray." I said, "Will you pray for me too?" <laughs> and they said, "Yeah, come on." We need God, don't we? We need Him always. Lord Jesus, received my spirit. He says. We see here where a man and a woman in a trial finds refuge. Where do we find refuge? At the throne of grace. We all have to fight for prayer time in our lives now, don't we? Anybody in here have to fight for that? Well, if you're not fighting for it now, when the trial comes, you won't know where to go. Do you understand? Seek Him now. Seek Him now. Discipline yourselves to be prayer warriors. On your face before the Lord. Why? So that when the trial comes, you know where to go. And you know who He is. And that He hears you. Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, so he sought the Lord. Who was ruling at the right hand of God. He was in control of those events and he knew it. Knowing God is sovereign does not eliminate prayer, it promotes it. Again, as we've said countless times, knowing God is... His sovereign should make us pray more. Next we see Stephen's final prayer request. Notice, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Okay, you want to hear it? Here's the punchline. You ready? This is the hope of the sermon. This is the hope of the sermon. It's beautiful. What we see here is a great man Going out with great grace all over him. Covered with God's grace. Notice he cried out with a loud voice. Literally again with a great voice. Before we saw, the loud voice was meant to cover the sounds of Stephen's sermon. So what does Stephen do in his dying day? He screams louder. (laughs) And as he cries out loudly, even as he's dying to make sure everyone can hear... We hear him praying for the ones killing him. That's, that's glorious, isn't it? That is the gospel, isn't it? What a final request. <laughs> I want that to be my last prayer request. Praying for my enemies. You understand? People go out of this world and their last pr- dying prayer is, Please, 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 me, 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 me. Make this easy. He says, Lord, don't hold this against them. He prays for his enemies. That's a man transformed by grace, isn't it? That's a man that understands that he deserves nothing, but God has been good to him. He doesn't say, wait, 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 God, what did I do to deserve this? He doesn't say that. He prays for his enemies. It's not, Lord, please stop them. Not, Lord, take vengeance upon them. Not, Lord, please protect me. Boy, you know how many times I hear people say, Well, what should I do if somebody's hurt me? And you give them the, you need to forgive them. You need to let it go. And they say, Well, they're just really wicked, man. They're really bad. They they need to pay for this. They need to do something. And you say, well, you know, let vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Let God do it. And that ain't enough. How about this? Next time somebody comes to me and asks me, when somebody hurts me, I'm going to say, you ready? Pray for them. And pray this. Lord, please don't hold this against them. Do we do that? Does anybody start with that? This is a man under the sovereign grace of God, isn't it? God is pouring out his unmerited favor on him. And this is the gospel, folks. Notice it's not, Lord, please protect me. Instead, it's, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, forgive them. Lord, grant repentance and faith to them so they can be right with you. That's what he means. This is the gospel. Look, look, listen. This is the gospel. This is the hope I was talking to you about. Friends, when we know the glory of Jesus, we're moved to live and proclaim Him. We speak and act like our Lord who died for us. And again, what he's saying in effect is, look, yes, you killed Him. But you see something different about me and that I'm saying, please forgive Him. That's stark contrast from the way the world thinks. But Again, the similarities to Christ and the crucifixion are obvious, aren't they? Think on it for a second. As Jesus sought the Father, now Stephen looks to the Lord. As Jesus at the cross, as Jesus sought God to forgive his persecutors, now Stephen seeks the Lord to not hold this sin against them. As Jesus had had in his prayer apparently answered, his prayer was answered. You remember the guard? He prayed for them, don't hold this against them. And he says, this is the Son of God. Truly, this is the Son of God. It appears the same thing happens with Stephen. Because Saul's sitting there watching the whole thing. And in effect, what's Stephen have? He has an answered prayer eventually. The very God that he says, please do not hold this against him. He calls out to God for that guy, and that guy gets what? Saved. It's glorious truth. You want to know if you're really understanding the grace of God? How many of you want to really get it? I do, don't you? Okay, here you go. You ready? You need some trials. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You need your spouse to say something mean to you. Really? Yes. You need to be mistreated some. Because, see, if you're mistreated and you understand the grace of God, then what you're going to do is you're going to respond with grace. You'll live with grace. If you're always walking around looking at everybody else's faults and why they do things wrong you're more like the ones that wanted to kill Stephen than like Stephen this is obviously what Stephen did here right and how long should we demonstrate this grace towards others <laughs> how long till you breathe your last just like Stephen that's how we're supposed to act Till we die. Just like Jesus did before him. Having said this, it says, he fell asleep. After he said, don't hold this against him, he died. I want to be like this. How many of you want to be like this? But are you willing to take the stoning and be like it? That's where we had the problem, Right? We say, I want to be like Stephen, until the first stone comes. And then, I don't want to be like Stephen anymore. Get me out of here now. Unfortunately, we don't even get stones; We just get a little verbal jab, and we're out of there. Especially in our culture, it thinks that we deserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and everything beautiful. After all, I should be treated well, right? We're not ready for this, are we? You know, I'm almost convinced, though. The more I go about this and the more I walk with the Lord and the more I see things unfolding in our country, I know why there's a reformation of God's sovereign grace right now. I really believe it's preparation. I'm completely convinced if you don't understand the sovereign grace of God, you are going to fall. It's going to be ugly. You better understand it. And you better embrace it. Beloved, we should seek to give grace just like Stephen did to those who persecute us till our dying breath. If we don't, it's probably because we've forgotten how much grace was given to us. If we have an error on one side, if we have to, and what I mean by this, listen closely. If we have to err on one side or the other, I want to err on giving too much grace. That's me. Okay? Now, I know some of us, you know, I'm not saying go over into antinomianism and and do whatever you want, and there's no accountability, and there's none of that. That's not saying that. But if you're going to fall over on one side or the other it would be much better to fall over on the grace side than it would be the legalistic side. Why? Because the legalistic side leads to death. The grace side leads to life. Beloved Stephen didn't shout out, you are going to pay for this, you wicked sinners. They were in sin, weren't they? Could he have confronted them some more? Sure. Might have even made him die faster. Right? I mean, if he would have said, said something like, Hey! <laughs> Come on! You're a wicked sinner and you're going to roast in hell for that one. You think what, what do you think they would have done? Picked up a bigger boulder and went after him. Right? Instead, he... He prays for them, for God not to hold it against them. We see Stephen's prayer is not answered immediately, and we'll see this in the coming weeks. In fact, the death of Stephen appears to embolden the enemy even more, as we'll see as it unfolds next week in 8 1 to 3, and then we'll move on. But I want to challenge you, all of you, and I want you to think on these things. Does your life reflect a grace-giving Christian? Does your life reflect a person who is all about loving and laying down your life for others despite their anger towards you? That's what I want in my life. How about you? How many of you are tired this selfish, indwelling part of us that's constantly complaining about not being treated well enough. I want that to die. How about you? How many of you are ready to start demonstrating the love of Christ that he's demonstrated towards us? That's what I want. That's what I want. I know where it comes. A better understanding of him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ and him crucified, resurrected, and reigning. Oh, Father, please help these truths be burned in our hearts. And, Father, we pray that your spirit will continually bring them to our minds. Help us to reflect the gospel in our lives. And Oh, God, please help us to love as you have loved us. Lord, we are needy sinners, all too prone to judge others and uh, raise ourselves above others instead of honoring you and serving you and sacrificing for you and others. Help us, Lord, help us, God, to be Christians that have not lost our first love you will be our greatest love, our greatest sacrifice, our greatest hope, our greatest joy, and that we will then demonstrate that gospel to others as we live for you. Help us now, Father, to apply these truths to our marriages and to our families and to our child raising and to our jobs. Lord, you know I'm not a a man that gives five ways to make your marriage better, but Lord, I'm convinced that If we understand the grace of God, our marriages will be better. Help us to understand it, God. Help us to apply it. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.